The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hello and you're very welcome to the Monday edition of The Right Hook. Tara Duggan with you until 7 o'clock this evening. Pat Hickey is now facing calls to resign fully from the Olympic Council of Ireland in order to draw something of a line, at least under the controversies of recent weeks. He uh, is still under arrest as part of an investigation into alleged illegal ticket sales at the Rio Olympics. But are we making a very big deal out of this story? Well, I'm joined on the line now by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and political columnist with irishcentral.com and thejournal.ie. Larry, this is the biggest story of the year. We've got the national obsession of sport combined with money, combined with alleged corruption, combined with keystone cops and bathrobes. What do you mean we shouldn't be making a fuss about it? Well, it's certainly a big story in the sense that it has all the theatre uh, and the trappings of a, of a good story. Uh, I should also say it's it's August, and uh, that's traditionally regarded as a silly season. And this, you know, this is something that obviously has legs. And indeed, uh, the Irish collective obsession with sport, and indeed with the Olympics, uh, provides a big backdrop. Um, but two things. I just want to say two things before I say any comments as to why uh, I think some perspective is needed on this. First, I'm mindful that there's a, there's a legal process that's unfolding uh, in Brazil, and very complex legal issues might come to the fore. Uh, are both there and here as this goes forward. Uh, and second, uh, you know, is the collateral damage, and not, nothing I should say should be taken. The collateral damage here is the athletes who work so hard and train for years and come to the Olympics. But two things I, I have to say, uh, both at international level uh, and, I suppose, more locally. The first at international level about the Olympics and about international amateur athletics generally it's an average conclusion, in my opinion, based on everything I've read, seen, and heard, uh, that international amateur athletics is irredeemably corrupt at every level. Uh, the second thing, and I suppose from uh, a national perspective, uh, we're talking about an inquiry, we're talking about what that's going to look like, uh, who's going to head it up, how long it's going to take. And two questions I just want to ask, and again, I know the issues here are important, but two issues that I want, the, there are two questions that need to be asked is first, how much taxpayer money here is really involved? The sum, by whatever measure you use, is a pittance. The second is, how many people are directly affected by what's gone on? And then the, the answer to that question is very few, relatively. So, uh, again, I just think we need some perspective on this. In relation to the money uh, and the funding, I've heard that in the region of, of, of one third. So I, certainly what seems to be coming out now is, is the level of, of taxpayer involvement or state funding involvement in the OCI is around one third, which is being portrayed as a small amount. In relation to your point, though, on amateur athletics and that it's beyond the point of being redeemed, expand on that a little bit for me. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you read any of the, of the accounts and there have been some in the Irish media, I think, uh, for instance, Tom McGurk, writing in the Sunday Business Post, has outlined uh, some of this stuff. But what you would divine from reading uh, in, in international media as well is that there seems to be a culture of pay-to-play uh, in the sense that lots of these events seem to involve uh, big money and big dollars, et cetera, around the world. Uh, you know, even if we look at, for instance, FIFA uh, and where the next soccer World Cup is to be held, uh, it's going to be in a place where, where it's boiling hot and totally inappropriate. Uh, and all, at every level, what you, what you read and what investigative journalists around the world uh, are encountering uh, is that the appearances of corruption that are there and that money is a central issue uh, in all of this. 
and specifically about the Olympics, this is something I can speak to uh, as a Bostonian. We were positioned to make a bid uh, for the 2024 Olympic Games, uh, and indeed a grassroots movement came to being and essentially got the, the public mood shifted it totally because what they pointed to was that the Olympic Games are not a winner for the local economies mm. and the, the countries in which they take place. They cost all sorts of money uh, needlessly, and they provide very little gain. And, and indeed, if we look at what's happened in Brazil, a place where there's extreme poverty, uh, and, the, and we look at uh, an Olympic Games that they spend huge money on with half-empty stadiums, the optics are horrific. In uh, many countries, just don't want the Olympics anymore. The Olympics is an institution in serious crisis. Yeah, and we've all seen those viral images that have been doing the rounds of of, of stadia past, you know, that that hosted uh, moments of Olympic glory and are now decrepit wrecks uh, with the, the local economy still paying handsomely for it. Do you think, though, that many people still think that the true ideals of the Olympics exist? And maybe that's why this deserves a degree of outrage, Larry. Oh, it absolutely deserves a degree of outrage. And again, my heart and my sympathies are with the people who train and work so hard uh, every single day uh, to become Olympians because of that dream ideal. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I think what's behind the, the, that amateur uh, ethos in sport is the best of sport. And I, and I'm, I, I you couldn't say enough about it. Uh, and indeed, that's why people are so disheartened. But I think you'd have to be going around uh, with blinders on not to know that for some time now, there's been huge amount of corruption uh, at international level in terms of the Olympics. Here, closer to home, uh, you know, again, I think that there needs to be a review uh, of the funding model, et cetera. I think that's important to happen. Uh, obviously, there are issues with, with what's happened. Uh, again, I'm mindful of this proceedings underway and people sure. are innocent until proven guilty. Sure. But uh, there needs to be a look at that. And one of the most sensible suggestions, actually, uh, I saw was on Twitter from Damien O'Mara uh, from RTE Sport who indicated that somebody who would be great to involve in this would be Paul McGinley, somebody who has serious experience uh, of international sports, somebody who's well-liked, well-got, well-respected uh, by everybody on all sides, that he would be somebody very well-positioned uh, to be uh, to play some role in, in, indeed in how we look at this. This country has a long and difficult history with uh, corruption allegations, Larry. Do you think we're finally sick of it? I, I are we are we I, are we at a turning point where where something like the the, the developments in Rio and, and allowing due process, obviously, but but is is this potentially maybe the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, it could be it could be something that that, that looks like. But what, what I what I will say, Tara, is that I'm not one of these people who is extremely cynical and hardened about everything that that happens here. There is certainly uh, an element here that thinks that everything is corrupt, nothing's on the level, etc. Um, of course, there's corruption. There's corruption in every society. Uh, I don't think it's as dramatic or severe uh, as some people here would allege, particularly on the political fringes. But at the same time, uh, I do think it's important, again, to have this root and branch review and to look at uh, other issues where corruption has been, been charged and to, to ensure that we have more transparency uh, in future. We've had a text in from Brian in Athlone, Larry. The Brazilian police believe a crime has been committed and are acting accordingly. Why are the Gardaí here not investigating a suspected crime? Am I missing something? Asks Brian in Athlone. Well, I mean, one of the things that's been said, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on it, but one of the things that's been said is the offences that, that, that are at least being charged in Brazil, uh, they're, not offend- they're not criminal offences here in Ireland. And again, there are a load of complex legal issues uh, that this brings to the fore. Uh, and, and again, it would seem to me a couple of things. It would seem to me first uh, that the sanction in Brazil, should this go all the way, uh, that would, would the, the idea of seven years imprisonment 
uh, for effectively touting or as we, or as we would say scalping tickets. If, party, uh, if be, parties are found guilty, though. Yes, if parties are found guilty, seems to me to be extraordinary uh, in, in its severity. Uh, and again, the second thing, uh, I think, again, this, this, this comes back to the point I was making about the Olympics, is the way this all unfolded, I think we should all be a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that the authorities seem to have tipped off the media uh, about, the, about the arrest and the way it all uh, took place and unfolded. And again, some of the speculation centers around the fact that the government in Brazil, under pressure for having spent so much money uh, on the games, uh, when the, in the, again, there's such dire poverty there, that the government here has a, polit- has a vested interest in trying to shift the blame uh, from itself or to, to shift public ire uh, to international and to outside figures. So there's a lot of complicated issues. And again, that's why this story has serious legs. But at the end of the day, if you keep coming back to the question of how much taxpayers' money is involved, how many people are directly affected, uh, I think that's where the perspective is needed. Uh, of course, there is action by the government, or seeming action by the government. Shane Ross announcing on Friday a judge-led inquiry. What's your view on that? Well, I mean, you know, again, I think it's important uh, that we have some clarity on exactly what happened. I think it's important uh, that we have some idea, you know, some ideas as uh, how funding happens, what the funding mechanism is, whether the IOC is the appropriate body. All that stuff, I think, is important uh, to be reviewed. Uh, but again, you know, there, there, there's reason to be, uh, I suppose, to have some healthy degree of skepticism about inquiries. Indeed, uh, what powers will this inquiry have? Uh, how long is it? take? Uh, how much money will it, will it possibly cost? And again, in light of the two questions I keep asking, that is taxpayer money, uh, how many people affected, uh, we ha- I think there needs to be perspective in establishing it and in whatever we do uh, with a view that keeps it all in, mu- in mind. Uh, and I think the, the key question in the future has to be, uh, how are we going to fund uh, these Olympic athletes? Again, with the O'Donovan brothers, the, the Annalise Murphy, countless others who've worked sure. so hard and brought such joy to the country. That's really where the focus needs to be. Mm. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and political columnist with irishcentral.com and the journal.ie. Thanks very much for sharing your views. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, earlier today, a record number of CAO candidates found out whether they'd been successful in their application for a college place. But while a large number of those applicants will be happy with what they've been offered today, the choices are less clear for those who didn't get their first choice or indeed any offer at all. Now, fortunately, they'd be glad to know that there's still plenty of options open to them if they want to study this year. Joining me on the line now to give more details about those options is Sinead Brady, career psychologist and founder of Career to Love. Sinead, welcome to The Right Hook. Um, Talk us through, I suppose, those various options for people uh, who got a CAO offer today? So congratulations. Um, By nine o'clock this morning, about 10,000 people had logged on and happily accepted their first round offer. So there's many people out there that are happy, um, but also it does mean that there's about four, you know, there's a large percentage that are also in the position that you say quite uncomfortable and not sure where to turn to next. Um, Based on the system that we have, the CAO system, it's a supply and demand system. So courses in areas like the built environment, architecture, business, engineering, all shot up this year. Um, in fact, the built environment had applicants up by about 20%, which saw a rise in some course points by about 95 points, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does leave people that would have expected to secure a place in one of those courses in, in, in a somewhat compromised position. Um, architecture went up, business and courses in general went up. 
but in particular business courses or engineering courses that sit at the intersection of business IT and engineering have gone up. So there's there's quite a movement in the in the CAO market, let's call it, towards courses that are reflecting where we hear or believe that the jobs are actually going to be somewhat somewhere in the future. Yeah, and so we'll, a very we'll, big change. We'll, we'll be coming to that very topic in in just a moment, Sinead. What about anyone, any student today who didn't get an offer at all? Should they be very worried? Yeah, well, the students that didn't get an offer at all today, and um, there's a couple of options available for them. Um, and while they didn't get an offer today, there is the subsequent rounds of offers coming up, which is the second and third round of offers. The reason that they didn't get an offer is, is fundamental. So if they didn't get an offer based on not meeting matriculation requirements, which means that they didn't get their maths or they didn't get their English or Irish or third language requirement, they're in a difficult position simply because even if they have the points for the course, if they didn't meet those matriculation or minimum entry requirements, mm. they will not have been offered a place. So they will have to reassess. So what a student like that can do is they can go and look at some of the PLC courses through the, you know, through the colleges of further studies around the country. And if they enroll in a course in one of those PLC colleges that's linked to the courses they would like to have done this year, that will facilitate meeting matriculation. Yeah, and, and there, there seems to be a bit of snobbery, Sinead, am I right, in and around PLC courses? Unfortunately, Tara, yes. Um, but it's a... It's, it's a very sad thing, actually, because the PLC sector is a vibrant sector. It's absolutely brilliant in delivering core education to a large majority of people that don't, for one reason or the other, go to college this year. And let's remember, university and college is not for everybody. Mm. And it's unfortunate that there's an element of snobbery attached to the PLC sector and to the apprenticeship sector, because there are some people who, if they had gone there previously, would not be deeply unhappy within their roles as they get older. Yeah. But the PLC sector is absolutely excellent. There are colleges that specialise in some really, really interesting areas that are cutting cutting edge. And in fact, the standard of some of the courses in some of the colleges is such that they now offer level eight degrees to some of the PLC colleges. Um, and very, very highly regarded within the UCAS system. Yeah. Uh- so... Definitely options to the PLC sector, Tara. Yeah. Now, what about the students? Let's get back to, to those who, who, who got uh, CAO offers today and maybe you didn't get your first choice, you got your second or your third choice. Should they be holding out or should they be just accepting what they get today? The, the politics and the tactics that are involved in this, Sinead, yeah. is what I'm getting at. Yeah, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of politics and a little bit of tactics, all right. So I always say that you treat the CAO as your fairy godmother and each course that you put down on the CAO form from one to ten is, is like a wish list. So the course that you put at the first should be the one that you want to do the most. It's your number one wish. And each subsequent course beneath that is your second most wanted, third most wanted. So say, for example, if you get offered your third most wanted course, your third place on your CAO, every other course from four to 10 on level eight or level six, level seven disappears. Those courses will never be offered to you in the CAO this year. Okay, so you can kind of move up, but you can't move back down. Am I right in, in your interpretation? Correct. Okay. Absolutely. What about so, somebody, sorry, Sinead, just what about somebody who um, maybe didn't do or, or didn't get the points requirements as they, as they expected? Leaving cert papers, what about the options that are involved there in going back and having them rechecked in, in an attempt to maybe try and garner a few extra points? Absolutely. So there's the option to go back and have your papers rechecked. Um, so within your school, if you contact your school and if it hasn't already been furnished to you, you get an application 
to go to recheck, to review your papers, which means that you can go in and you can sit and you can actually look through your papers as they were corrected and so on and so forth with a teacher from that particular subject or with somebody who you feel will be helpful to you in the situation. Now, you can't bring anything into the room with you in order to take notes, but you can view everything. Mm. And if you feel that you or the person that's with you feel that you are entitled to more marks in that paper, or perhaps perhaps because of human error, your marks weren't added up correctly, have, it re- have your, check, your script rechecked. And if your points go up, now remember they can also go down, yep. but the majority go up. But if your points go up at that point, then you will be awarded a new leaving cert script with the recommend with the reviewed points on it and the review grades on it. And in subsequent round of offers, if that makes a difference to the offer that you should have originally got, yep. you will be offered that course. Okay. Finally, Sinead, uh, what happens if you accept something today or even in the second round? And then you have a little bit of a think about it and some time to digest it and you decide, actually, do you know what? I'm not digging this at all. This is not what I want to, to, this is not the course I want at third level. Can students change their mind later if they accepted an offer now? So, for example, if you accept your third offer, so we go with the example of being offered your third choice today. If you accept that and a subsequent offer comes up with first or second, in subsequent rounds, you get your second or your first offer, you can absolutely take that first or second choice. Um, in subsequent rounds. But if you decide that you don't want to go to college at all, that actually you feel you want a year out, that you want to go to a FETAC course or you yep. want to do work for the year, absolutely, there's no problem. Once you haven't started the course and spent more than half the first semester in that course, if you drop out of the okay. course, there's no ramifications okay. in terms of financial ramifications. Okay, all right. Uh, just one listener text, but I think you, you may have nearly answered it in that. What can a student do if offered a course but actually wants an apprenticeship but they won't know if the apprenticeship place is coming through until the end of September? I'm presuming that's a case of accept the CAO offer and then see what happens at a later date, yeah? Accept the CAO offer, see what happens at a later date. Once you're happy with the CAO course in the first instance, accept it. Always, I always say the rule of thumb is ex- ex- the first offer or the offer that you get today, expect it to be your only offer. Mm. You may get offers in subsequent rounds, but you may not. And the other thing, Tara, just to draw students' attention to is the vacant places that are available. And vacant places are places that are available through the CAO that haven't yet been filled on courses. So it means that students who didn't get an offer today, if they see one of those courses and think that one of those courses would suit them, they can then place it on their CAO form beneath the level of the course that they would really love to do and potentially be offered that course. Okay. So for example, Arson Manus is on there, albeit at the first year is in their Kakani campus, it's on there, as is electrical engineering in Manus. So there are some really interesting courses on there at the moment that might actually suit the needs of some students who didn't get any offers. Okay, very good. Sinead Brady, career psychologist and founder of Career to Love, thank you for talking us through uh, the rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts of the system. Of course, this is all purely, if you pardon the pun, academic because the route we uh, that most people heading to third level and certainly their parents want is a viable career. So while points for courses such as engineering and construction have risen, points for arts and agriculture courses have fallen, but what does it mean in terms of a person's viable working future? Well, joining me now uh, to discuss the trends is Aidy McGuinness, CEO of Sigmar Recruitment. Uh, 
what 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 like there's a lot a lot being put this year on, on that rise in you know engineering and business etc. Are they a route to viable careers in your opinion, Adi, or are there better options that people could be looking at? No, they definitely are, as you rightly say. Um, it's often the parents that dictate the uh, the agenda in this case, and we obviously advise people to to do whatever they're interested in. And as Sinead said, it's supply and demand thing. So definitely, the increases in engineering, particularly in construction, uh, are indicative in the, in the change in demand. I mean, the funny thing about that, as you know, is you're sort of second guessing where the jobs are going to be in four or five years' time. Yeah, well, that's it. And and if you if you bear in mind the seeming turnaround, I mean, I, I, it was a couple of a couple of months since I was in this building, but going up. On the roof the other day I was struck by the number of cranes now again on the Dublin city centre skyline and further out as well and down the country so the demand there for people in construction and engineering is kind of now is it not again maybe uh, and it may not be there again in, in, in three or four years' time when, when today's uh, college entrants graduate. Well, that's it. Past performance and all that type of stuff. I mean, it's probably not a bad indicator, but certainly people can try and be too clever and uh, I guess whatever's coming out there. Arguably, three years ago was the time to look at it when construction demand was low, but it was going to look like it was going to increase and people are looking five years out and say that was the time to look at construction um, construction type degrees. So so it, it is supply and demand. I suppose the ones that are seen to be in vogue are on the rise definitely IT, definitely engineering, definitely construction and the traditional ones like accounting and legal are going to be pretty solid. But the other point I think you're making is, is uh, you know, the actual discipline of the third level, particularly degree in those level eights, isn't necessarily going to dictate what somebody's going to do any longer. Mm. And can you second guess? Can you look three, four, five years out and go, that's where there's going to be, you know, jobs in, and I'm going to be in demand. I want to be a mechanic in a driverless car. Well, do you <laughs> or, see, or that's a virtual it. pilot of a drone. Uh, it, it's very difficult. I mean, you can you can do the best you can. I mean, our guess is as good as yours. We're certainly talking to employers every day. IT doesn't look like going away. But then again, the IT industry have undertaken, we've done some research this year, and they were particularly looking for graduates in humanities degrees. And they thought that maybe the sort of, you know, the artistic type of element was coming in and that the, you know, you don't need to be a BSc in computer science to go into the IT area. But IT is not going away. You know, it's going to be there. The traditional areas are not going to go away. I wouldn't try and be over prescriptive. I mean, mm. if somebody's got a, a real ambition for some reason to do law uh, or, or to, to become a lawyer, then that's probably going to be a solid area that's not going to go away. If it's a very minute subsection of IT or programming or multimedia, uh, maybe there's more finger on the pulse stuff there about see what's happening. Sure. And I mean, on, on that point uh, of the arts degrees and humanities degrees, we're seeing points for them actually falling. And yet, if you were to listen to the US Chamber of Commerce, for example, they're sort of saying that it's not STEM anymore. It's not science, technology and maths. It's STEAM. They're looking for people with those uh, so-called soft skills. Yeah, and and, and the STEM uh, increases and decreases, as you saw across the board, were actually quite mixed. Now, that's obviously only relative to last year. So we're just making it relative to last year. So I suppose as the harder skills become more in demand, then the arts degrees are going to fall away. But the advice vis-a-vis our conversation, Tara, with with Sinead there is if people don't get their first uh, choices not to panic you know mm. there's lots of stories out there about people that look back and you know with 
looking backwards and say, look, I didn't get my first choice, but I'm glad I got my second. There's very few by people saying, actually, 20 years ago, if I'd only had to get those extra few points. So it's, people tend to make the best of it. Yeah, and just to, uh, to, to finish on that point, if you have somebody who's stressing out who maybe is, you know, not, not, not everyone's cut out for third level, let's call a spade a spade. Does that confine them to a life of low-level jobs? Or if they were to decide to not to go to college and to take a, a retail job or something like that, are they actually doing themselves a good service by increasing, for example, their customer service skills? Well, well uh, absolutely. It doesn't rule out anything into the future. And you're 100% right. It's not for everybody to go to college, you know. And also, as mentioned earlier, some of the PLC course are very good. So absolutely. My own lad did leave in certain, got his results last week and he wants to do a particular course. And as it goes, he got good points. And I was saying, would you not reconsider, you know, and he was into doing film and broadcast, actually. And uh, and he was 100% saying, look, that's what he wants to do. So if whether people get their, their first course or have to go for their second or third choice, I think make the most of it. And it's not going to have a huge bearing on their career in eight, ten years time. But all is not lost. There are still jobs and a viable career ahead of you, even if you don't go to third level. 100%. All right. Very good. AD McGuinness, CEO of Sigmar Recruitment. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Recently, much has been made about Generation Snowflake and how a culture of hypersensitivity is supposedly threatening to stifle free speech. But writing in today's Irish Independent, journalist Barbara McCarthy doesn't quite go that far, but she's arguing that being offended at minor things is a distraction from bigger issues. And uh, she worries that nobody really is being allowed to sit on the fence anymore. I'm delighted to say that Barbara McCarthy joins me in studio. Thanks for joining us this evening, Barbara. Thank you very much, Tara. So... Is a culture where people can be offended at really small things not indicative of a more progressive society? The small things that may be niggled and hampered progression in society in, in recent years are now finally being called out. Is that not a good thing? Yeah, but there's small things by small a small number of people. You know, um, if you say, for example, I was writing about breastfeeding there. And I was watching this video the other day and this woman's like, oh, I'm conf- we're all confined to, the, you know, cubicles in um, toilets of pubs and restaurants. And, you know, there's graffiti everywhere. It's really dark and horrible. We're sitting there f- feeding our children away from the public, you know, because nobody wants to see breastfeeding in public. And that's not true. I breastfed my child for 10 months. Nobody ever said a word. People don't actually care. You know what I mean? You might get one person. You know, if, if you ask them, if you look at the comment strands, there wasn't anybody saying, oh, yeah, that happened to me. It was so terrible. You know, and this person came up to me and then I was kicked out of that restaurant or was asked to leave this pub it doesn't happen like that I'm sure a lot of people but if it does happen it's isolated things happen and then it just becomes this big story because it happened somewhere once you know like one woman was asked to leave the hotel in London because she was breastfeeding by one person you know, and suddenly it's like, oh, this big anti-breastfeeding campaign thing. So one person's negative experience does not a compelling case make. No, exactly. Exactly. This is my point. This is the point that I was trying to get across today. So, But have people not been offended and getting offended at things at, at any end of the scale, minor or major, forever? Yeah. But nowadays we're more, pro, we just, it's more in our faces because of social media and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's just all these outlets where people can be offended nowadays, you know. But get, mean, getting back to the breastfeeding um, point mm. that you make, is it not a good thing that generally, even if it is minor occurrences, that at least 
it informs a discussion point. At least maybe it might inform another member of staff in another hotel somewhere else that, Mm. you know, even if they are personally offended or believe that the rest of their clients may be offended, they might be a little bit more gentle in their approach or they might decide not to make that approach at all. Yeah, most people would be scared at this stage to make any kind of an approach, I think. Uh, Even if people feel uh, these days, you know, they're just so afraid to offend if they just say anything, you know. You used to always have the old auntie or the granny. They just kind of come out with whatever. Um, But that's we don't live in a generation of that anymore. We're kind of meant to be tolerant, but there's a certain level of intolerance within our tolerance, if you know what I mean. You cite... You're kind of, it's like, oh, you have to, you know, we're all really tolerant, but you have to be, you know, pro-abortion or you have to be, you know, part of the breastfeeding militia. I mean, when I was, when I had my child, I was in hospital, my friend came in, she's like, oh, you just gave her a bottle. And I'm like, oh God, did I just do something horribly wrong? I've just had a child, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know how it worked. You know the way, it's just kind of very militant, I find. Yeah. The, the I... left side of things, uh, the liberal side of things is getting quite militant in its, you know, Ability to be offended, you know what I mean? I, I understand mm. and I mean, I would have had personal experience yeah. in that yeah. sphere myself yeah. as well. My babies were bottle fed and yeah. I was made to feel, I suppose, oh, like, like a bit of a pariah. Exactly, and I think that is wrong as well, you know? I mean, people, they just feel persecuted because they're bottle feeding and, you know, the same thing goes if you're breastfeeding and then you want to have a drink and, you know, it, it's, just, it's just, we live in such a liberal society but at the same time people pretend or, you know, convince themselves that they're so liberal and yet they're very intolerant of a lot of things, you know? It's, it, it, it's an, it's, what's the word? It's oxymoron? It doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. You cite in the article as well the recent incidents of uh, a female protester, um, a topless protester in Wicklow yeah. w- in relation to, she, her protest was in relation to the Free the Nipple campaign. Yeah. But what was wrong with the outrage there? The outrage. I mean, I wouldn't care less. I personally don't care if people. I'm, I'm from Germany. People are sitting in the park naked, chatting to each other, you know, during the work break. So, um, but I think it was just the fact that she did it in the, in the name of other people who didn't want to get their breasts out, or the fact that men can be topless and women can't be topless, which isn't the same. You can't compare like with like. It's like the same as a man just, you know, taking his trousers off. And He's not allowed to do that either, you know. Mm. And it is Ireland. We're, I think we're still quite far away in, personally from the kind of whole the topless thing. I think that it's still the kind of Catholic guilt from whatever yonder. It might be a couple of generations before people are OK with it. I personally don't care. But the whole kind of outrage, you know, this kind of persecution complex that people have and the... Free the nipple. I I just, I don't know. I I, I don't get it. (laughs) Sorry. Are are women more likely then, is there an undercurrent that I'm hearing here that maybe women and feminists are more likely to verbalise outrage? Yeah, of course. Of course. And you have to be part of this free the nipple. I don't know what people want. People to have their nipples out. I don't know. Free the balls. (laughs) Is that the other alternative? (laughs) Hey, let's let's start a two woman campaign. No, actually, let's not. I think there might be much happier I'd rather not. But feminism, where does that where does that come into play here with this you know, this 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 consistent moral outrage and calling out the small things? Yeah, I think it's just it's part you kind of have to be a, a feminist. A lot of people um I find it quite um, aggressive, um, the feminist campaign at the moment. I don't know, do they want us to... Where's it going to end, you know? Peace standing up or something. I don't know. Um, You know, (laughs) we have equality. I've never felt that I don't... I've never felt not equal to a man myself, do you know? And I'm into all the stuff like motor racing and, I, you know, football and stuff. I've never ever felt... All all the careers and stuff I've followed, I've never felt that I've been marginalised just because I'm a woman. So the whole feminist campaign, a lot of the free... I don't get get it. Sorry, I don't get it. Um, Is the whole concept maybe a little outdated, Barbara Yeah, it's a bit outdated. We have... You you know, we're, we're living in Western society. We have rights you know it, there are women in other societies that are being persecuted I would rather we you know had a, a campaign 
focused on that rather than the free the nipple campaign. I think that's just but um, is it, when people is it, have it too good, you know. Is it possible though, Barbara, to be a moderate feminist anymore or or is the whole concept essentially outdated and in need of a revamp and a rebrand? Yeah, I think it's kind of men and women are getting lost in a bit in, in the whole feminist thing. You know, men are losing their way. <laughs> they don't, you know, you have to pay for the, the, the whole kind of taking the coat off for the lady and buying drinks and stuff. You know, I saw an article the other day as well about men saying, why should I buy the woman, you know, the meal if I ask her on a date first time around? So there's a bit of confusion there as well, you know, um, because that was always traditionally the way it was done. If you know, if the man asked, yeah, he paid for the meal or the drinks or whatever. So I think everyone's got a bit lost in it. Um, like I said, I've never particularly been that fond of the word feminism um, in this age that we're living in now um, because I think it just creates a bit of a divide um, between men and women, you know. Now, in your article in The Independent today, you detail a number of incidences that you personally have experienced with regards to, well, flashers and, you know, things of a, of a, of a sexual nature or sexually demeaning nature. What about the recent discussion, though, involving a British police force who have basically put it on, on the books that catcalling is an offence. I appreciate that an, a lot of the argument that was raised against that in recent weeks was that, you know, it's a small incident. It's a small incident. It's a small thing. Uh, and in your piece today, you kind of detailed your own personal experiences in that regard. And again, sort of came to the conclusion that in the scheme of things, it was also small. Yeah, it is. I mean, how many people are you going to come across in your lifetime on a day-to-day basis? And everyone knows, you know, you sometimes you leave the house, there's someone shouting and whatever at them for no reason. Or, you know, there's, there's, there, there are individual cases um, of, like, like I was writing about today, of, you know, people flashing or, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And most of the women I know, that they say, oh, that happened to me too, which is shocking. But when you kind of add it up over time and distance and age and, you know, days in the year and how many people you encounter walking down the street on a day-to-day basis, it's very, very, very few. It's a, it's a handful, really. And I think that we need to remember that. Yeah, but I mean, you also have to bear in mind that it's happening to you on a day and it's happening to maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 other people. So in actual fact, what may appear on the surface as a, as a smaller issue, mm. it's actually a really big issue and one that needs to be called out and needs to be rectified. Yeah, how can you do that though if it's certain members of society? Someone will always disapprove, you know, if you want, if, if you had a, you know, a, a question of whether you want the sun to rise tomorrow morning, you know, there'd be people to say no, you know. Um, so I don't know how to address that if it's just individuals. Like if one person were to come up to me and say, I don't like you breastfeeding in the entire time in which I breastfed, I'd... I'd I wouldn't actually, I'd just walk away from that and go, that person's obviously just very intolerant and I wouldn't really make a thing of it, to be honest. Is there any truth then in the idea that if you're not part of the solution, you're, you're part of the problem? Um, <laughs> I don't know if this requires a solution, does it? <laughs> Is this a solution kind of problem kind of thing? I don't know. Well, if people are, are outraged, if people are commenting, well, well then they have a problem. But the, we're seven billion people living on a planet together. You're never going to find uh, people agreeing with everything that you do. You know, that's just uto- utopic, I think. On balance, though, is it not better that even these small issues or smaller issues, which can have huge impacts on people's individual lives and, and their health and their well-being, is it not better that they are called out? Yeah, but I don't know what you can do about single issues like that. You know, you call out one person who said something to someone on the street and go, what, what, I don't know. 
I don't know how to find a solution to certain small fractions of society disagreeing with what you do, you know. But if you bear in mind the context that you set for the start, Barbara, mm. of social media and the fact that, the, you know, yeah. it's, it's a global but it conversation. Just becomes, it just becomes more, it just seems like a bigger thing, even if it is just one person, do you know? Um, because, I mean, think about it. When you think about um, ISIS, there's a small bunch of people. And yet, you know, we're saying don't persecute a whole, you know, uh, you know, a whole race of people either because of the actions of a few. You know, and yet here are the actions of a few and suddenly it has to be a big movement. It doesn't make any sense to me. All right, very good. Barbara McCarthy, uh, if you have a view on this, 53106 at a cost of 30 cent or Twitter at Tara at last. Thanks for joining us, Barbara. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, with increasing numbers of people seeking help for anxiety disorders across the country, sufferers are seeing an impact not only on their social lives, but also on their dating lives. Many men, apparently, really grappling and struggling with asking women out, even though they may be well in their 30s, because of anxiety issues. Well, joining me on the line, I have eminent GP with a special interest in mental health, also author of Flagging Anxiety and Panic, Dr Harry Barry. Uh, Dr Barry, you're very welcome to the programme. First of all, if we can start with what social anxiety is and how, if in any way, it differs from other anxiety disorders. Uh, basically, uh, general anxiety would be just where people are, are worrying about things like their, their, their health or, you know, th- things that don't really uh, matter, matter a lot. But in fact, to them, they, they worry a lot about them and also things like panic attacks. But when we move into the area of social anxiety, uh, the person is actually, their anxiety is simply about the fact that they're going to have to involve themselves in social interaction uh, with their peers. So a, a classic example of this, uh, Tara, would be suppose uh, you got a, an invitation to go down uh, to the local pub to, to meet a few friends, you know what I mean, and it was going to be, say, a few either guys or girls that you wouldn't know normally. That would be enough to send you into a total spin, do you know what I mean, perhaps for maybe up to a couple of hours before you actually go there. You would, you would find yourself getting incredibly anxious. And that would involve a huge amount of physical symptoms. You know, you'd find your stomach and knots, yourself a bit sweaty, a bit shaky, maybe your heart going a little bit quicker, you're, you're, uh, you're breathing a bit faster. And all that would be going on in your mind would be, uh, oh my God, this is going to be a total disaster. What are people going to think of me? Uh, they're going to see that I'm very anxious when I get there. They're going to see I'm sweating or I'm blushing or they're going to see I'm fidgety, or they're going to see that I'm a very bad, that I'm hopeless in conversation, and I never know really what to say, and they're going to think I'm boring. So the person has all these kind of anxieties going on in their mind before they ever arrive into the social situation, mm. which of course means by the time they get there, they're, they're usually so anxious that they, they and yet they, they, will, they will often seem to everybody else to be fine, but to the person themselves, what many Irish people do, uh, particularly young men, they'll go straight to the to the to the bar end. You mm. know what I mean, and, and get some alcohol. And we'll we'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you though about: uh, Are we seeing a rise in the number of people reporting that social anxiety? Yeah, I, I think social anxiety. Uh, it, always about five percent of the community, maybe as much as seven, sometimes up to eight percent. But I certainly am seeing a lot more young men uh, and some young girls with it. And I, I think that's kind of very understandable because we're living in, 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 this, in a world of social media and technology where I think people are losing a lot of these natural skills, you know, these natural conversation skills and, 
uh, and interactional skills. But what happens to the person with social anxiety is that usually somewhere along the line during their, their teens, maybe uh, somebody makes a, a kind of a show of them in public uh, or something happens to them that makes them feel slightly embarrassed or a bit ashamed. And they, it seems to kind of embed itself in on their emotional mind. And what happens is then they carry that with them into young adulthood and then into their uh, sometimes mid and late 20s. And I've actually had uh, people who struggle to, to form relationships because they're so anxious, uh, you know, in these social situations that they become almost paralysed. I want to go back to the, to the social media element, though, as well, um, Harry. You mentioned how potentially this is being impacted by the fact that, you know, those normal social interactions that you would have had are sort of disrupted now by the fact that so much communication is done via screen and, and via technology. I, I want to ask you, though, but is there an, a part of, of keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Kardashians even in terms of so much of what's portrayed on social media is this perfect image of this perfect life and these perfect selfies and, you know, images being photoshopped and so that... Young people maybe, and not so young people too, portray this per- image of perfection on social media that they then fear they can't meet in person. I couldn't agree more with you. I, I think we are being sold this, this idea of, like for example, girls, we, we know that girls, particularly in their, in their teens and maybe early 20s, are really falling completely into the trap of, of, of this perfect as persons physically and also by the way this perfect virtual online identity which is totally unreal but of course if i look at myself in the mirror and i'm seeing these extraordinary creations which they are online uh, and i'm trying to match myself up to those then of course i'm never going to match those and for the guys actually what's a little bit more worrying is many of those i see them ending up kind of going to the gyms and going on steroids and trying to build themselves up in all these uh, muscular kind of ways because yep. that's the image they're being sold mm. online. And of course, none of this is, makes any difference whatsoever in genuine real social interaction, but in their minds, it, it's been sold to them. So it's certainly part of, of, of the problem. But I, I think we, we have to understand that social anxiety is a particular phobia of, uh, you know, of itself. You know, it's not just that um, people feel... Um, that they, they should be kind of comparing themselves and things like that. It's more that they genuinely are becoming incredibly anxious. I mean, imagine if, for example, you were in a social situation, Tara, and you were there, and you're, what was going on in your head, I better stay at the edge of the group. I hope nobody starts a conversation with me. Uh, if somebody does start to talk to me, I start rehearsing in my head, what will I say? How will it look? Will they think I'm stupid? Do you know what I mean? And, and uh, all the time, kind of maybe going in and out to the restrooms, you know, how do I look? Um, do I look fidgety or do I look anxious? Because, of course, what they're most worried about is that people will think they're anxious. And, of course, in their minds, they believe that anxious people are weak people. We've mm. Somehow we've managed to get this message across. So what we have to do for these, uh, for these people is try to unlearn these messages and teach them new skills and new ways. Okay, I want to talk specifically about the impact that this social anxiety has then on dating and dating particularly for men and and not even for, you know, an element of our conversation up to this point has been talking about younger adults or teenagers. But this, you say, is something that is affecting men in particular and well into their 30s. They have lost the ability to ask a woman out. Well, if you think about it, uh, Tarek, imagine that you were in this social situation 
uh, let's put it in the other way. Suppose you were a young girl in your 30s and you had suffered from being uh, very socially anxious so that every time when you went into that situation, uh, you, you were terrified. You wanted to meet somebody, the male on the other side, but you were terrified of the actual process whereby you would have to go through the whole thing of meeting the person and the conversation and, and, and all of that. So what, what actually happens is your, your mind is so filled with, with the, the anxieties of what other people will think that you can't even get yourself into the space. So many of these men, what I, men and women, I would find something that, uh, that uh, people don't talk enough about is I would find many of them very lonely because that loneliness comes from that sense of isolation, that, that sense of, you know, I'm never going to be able to get over this. I'm never going to be able to reach a point where I can genuinely interact mm. in this kind of normal way. Uh, and, of course, many of them get very lonely. And, you know, there, there is, um, it's probably the only form of anxiety where actually even self-harm can actually come into the equation because if people get extremely isolated, extremely lonely, it can be a major issue. Um, I'm often asked this, well, does our modern, you know, shall we say, uh, dating online, does that not help the person? Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. that because yeah. I was going to ask you about that because if you're reluctant to put yourself forward in a social situation where you have other people around you and, as you've said, there's a, a prevalence of loneliness or people feeling lonely at least, does that lead then to, and we were speaking earlier in the programme about, about sexting, uh, and I know from my own experience and also from that of my friends that online conversations very, very quickly turn of a sexual nature. Uh, and so is that partly fueled by this social anxiety if somebody doesn't feel able to have those conversations in, in, in person or doesn't ha- hasn't built up a store of how to approach asking a member of the opposite sex out, does it kind of flip out into uh, uh, this unrealistic world whereby it's actually okay to say anything to anybody really, really quickly uh, online? Yeah, it's a very, I think it's a a fascinating, uh, uh, fascinating uh, conversation, uh, this, this whole area. I think there's probably a couple of elements to it. I think the first thing is when we're dealing with sexting and that kind of area. We're usually dealing with younger age groups, in my experience. Anyway. I would um, beg, I would beg to, as a woman in her 40s, well, as maybe, a single maybe, woman in her 40s, I'm I would beg to the, differ. I'm touch with what's going on in, 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 in other groups. But, but certainly, um, I do agree with you that there has been, there is, there is a great danger that online you can say anything. And uh, one of the issues as well uh, that I would see is actually the, the, the actual thing of people having virtual online relationships uh, with people who they think they know yep. online, but who are actually not those people at all. Mm. One, of the, one of the things that I have seen some uh, people with social anxiety fall into the trap of is uh, having the, having the, having the uh, virtual relationship online, but without never actually the actual one-to-one interaction. Mm. But of course, that creates a whole new layer of it gives you a safety thing that you don't have to get involved in the direct social um, uh, interaction. But of course, there are huge risks with that. Yeah, you feel you can feel that you're becoming intimately involved and getting to know somebody very well without getting to know them at all. Very finally and very quickly, you mentioned the role of alcohol. Uh, how does that kick in here in, in, in the area of social anxiety? Well, I, I think uh, 
many many young people who talk to me, and I'm talking about young people, and I'm talking up to say uh, thirty, thirty-five, that uh, will will tell you that they they you know it's a way of numbing the anxiety because the physical symptoms of anxiety can be very very um, uncomfortable uh, if you don't learn how to deal with them. So what many many young people do is they numb themselves with alcohol. So uh, I think often that the the whole you know this whole business of people going out and getting completely drunk sometimes sometimes that may begin as a way of dealing with anxiety and many young people will say they know that they drink far too much too quickly and too much because it's their only way of coping with yeah okay very good uh gp and author of flagging anxiety and panic dr harry barry thanks very much for joining us this evening